Welcome to the African American Hour. I'm Byron Buckner, bringing you an hour of news, history, information, and commentary about the African American community. In today's program, I'll have readings from the New York Times newspaper and also the Washington Post newspaper, the websites health.mil, cleveland.com, and wordandblack.com. And I'm going to start with some basic statistics about African Americans in a story titled, Key Facts About the Nation's 47.9 Million Black Americans. This comes from the Pew Research Center and its pewresearch.org website. It was written by Mark Lopez and Mohammed Muslimani. The number of black people living in the United States reached a new high of 47.9 million in 2022, up about a third, 32%, since 2000, according to a Pew Research Center analysis of government data. This group is diverse, with a growing number and share born outside the United States and an increasing number saying they are of two or more races. For Black History Month, here are key facts about the nation's black population. In this analysis, the black population is made up of three main groups. Single race, non-Hispanic black people, non-Hispanic multiracial black people, and black Hispanics. One. The black population of the United States has grown by 32% since 2000, rising from 36.2 million, then to 47.9 million in 2022. Notably, the number of black people self-identifying as another race in addition to black has increased nearly 254% since 2000. This reflects a broader national shift in the number of Americans identifying as multiracial, as well as changes to how the United States Census Bureau asks about race and ethnicity. The number of black Americans who say they are Hispanic has also risen sharply over this period, up 199% since 2000. 2. The arrival of new immigrants from Africa, the Caribbean, and elsewhere has been an important contributor to black population growth. In 2022, there were 5.1 million black immigrants in the United States, up from 2.4 million in 2000, according to our analysis of Census Bureau data. Immigrants accounted for 11% of the black population in 2022, up from 7% in 2000. 3. The black population has grown fastest in states that historically have not had large numbers of black residents. Utah experienced the fastest growth in its black population between 2010 and 2022, with an increase of 86%. The black populations of Hawaii and Nevada increased by 57% and 56% respectively during that span. This only counts states with black populations of at least 25,000 in 2010. The states that experienced the largest numerical increases in black residents between 2010 and 2022 are also those with the largest black populations overall. Texas, which saw growth of 1 million black residents between 2010 and 2022, Florida, up 745,000, and Georgia, up 595,000. Each of these states now has a black population larger than that of New York, which ranked first in 2010. Meanwhile, the black population declined in the District of Columbia, negative 2%, and Illinois, negative 1%, between 2010 and 2022. Four, New York City has more black residents than any other metropolitan area. About 3.6 million black Americans live in the New York metro area. Other metro areas with large black populations include Atlanta, 2.2 million, Chicago, 
1.7 million, and Washington, D.C., 1.6 million. As a share of the population, the Atlanta area is home to a higher percentage of black people than any other metro area with at least 1 million black residents. Nearly 4 in 10 residents of the Atlanta metro area, 36%, are black. The next highest shares are the metro areas of Washington, 28%, Detroit, 24%, and Philadelphia, 23%. 5. The black population of the United States is relatively young. In 2022, the median age of black Americans was 32.1 years, meaning half of the nation's black population was younger than that age and half was older. By comparison, the median age of the nation overall was 38 that year. The median age among single-race, non-Hispanic black Americans was 34.9 in 2022, compared with 21 among black Hispanics and 19.5 among multiracial, non-Hispanic black Americans. 6. Educational attainment among black Americans is on the rise. In 2022, 26.1% of black adults ages 25 and older, 7.8 million people, has earned at least a bachelor's degree. That was up from 14.5% in 2000. Growing shares of black women and black men alike have earned at least a bachelor's degree, but black women have made faster gains than black men. In 2022, 28.9% of black women ages 25 and older had earned at least a bachelor's degree, up from 15.4% in 2000. Among black men in the same age range, by comparison, 22.8% had earned at least a bachelor's degree in 2022, up from 13.4% in 2000. 7. Black Americans are less likely than other Americans to be married. About a third of black adults, 32%, are currently married. That compares with 53% of adults who are not black. Among black adults, 36% of men are married, compared with 29% of women. Black women, in turn, are slightly more likely than black men to be divorced, 14% versus 10%, or widowed, 8% versus 2%. 8. About a sixth of married black adults, 17%, are married to someone who is not black. This includes 21% of married black men and 13% of married black women. These shares only consider those who are married and whose spouses live in the same household. Married black women, in turn, are more likely than married black men to have a spouse who is also black, 87% versus 79%. This includes spouses who are single race, multiracial black, and black Hispanic. 9. Black households had a median annual income of $50,000 in 2022. That included a median income of $60,000 among multiracial black households, $56,500 among black Hispanic households, and $49,500 among single-race black households. Looked at another way, about half of all black households, 51%, had a household income of $50,000 or more in 2022, while 49% earned less than that. Meanwhile, a recent Pew Research Center analysis found that black households made gains during the pandemic when it comes to wealth. The difference between the value of assets owned and debts owed the typical single-race, non-Hispanic black household saw a 77% increase in its wealth from December 2019, $15,300, to December 
$27,100. That was the article titled, Key Facts About the Nation's 47.9 Million Black Americans. It was written by Mark Lopez and Mohammed Maslamani, and it appeared at the PewResearch.org website on January 18th, 2024. Next on today's African American Hour is an opinion piece from the website wordandblack.com, which is a collaboration of 10 Afro-American newspapers. The title of this opinion piece is, Is Moving to the South Really Better for Black Folks? It was written by Bria Overs and published January 25, 2024. The subtitle is, Black Americans are Moving Back to the South. But homeownership in the region has barely budged and in some cases even declined. There's no place like home. And that may be why black Americans are moving back to the South. During the Great Migration from the 1910s to the 1970s, an estimated six million black people moved to states in the North, Midwest and West. They moved to New York City, Chicago, Los Angeles, Seattle and Detroit. One hundred years later, Atlanta, Dallas, and Houston saw the largest net migration of black families, according to the Black Wealth Data Center, BWDC. BWDC is a program spurred by a collaboration between Bloomberg Philanthropy's Greenwood Initiative and Prosperity Now. It was created to address a lack of sufficient and accessible data on black wealth. There are lots of reasons why people move, and you can't paint a broad brush on why people move from one place to another. Doug Ryan, Vice President of Policy and Applied Research at Prosperity Now, tells Word in Black. He adds that it could be that black families are moving back to the South to care for a family member or in search of affordable housing. However, the South has some of the same issues for black people as in any other region. Racial progress may be one reason for this new migration pattern. A recent Wallet Hub analysis found that Georgia and Texas had the most racial progress since the Civil Rights Movement with Mississippi in third place. They point to a reduced earnings and business ownership gap in Georgia and reduced health insurance coverage and education gap in Texas. Georgia, the state with the most racial progress, has reduced the gap between the earnings of white and black Americans by over 32% since 1979, Cassandra Hopp, analyst at WalletHub, said in a statement. It has also decreased the gap in business ownership by over 11% since 2002. Georgia has made a lot of progress with reducing the poverty rate of black residents and increasing the share of black business executives, too. Even with increased earnings in business ownership, home ownership, one of the most popular forms of wealth generation, lags for black people. Over five years, the number of homeowners increased by just 1.4% in Atlanta, and decreased by 3.6% in Dallas and 2.1% in Houston, according to the BWDC. During that same time frame, the national black homeownership rate increased from 41.9% in the first quarter of 2015 to 44.1% by the end of 2020. It's extraordinarily difficult because these are markets that people want to live in, and to be honest, they just have not built housing to keep up with the demand, Ryan says. The BWDC also found a substantial difference in the ratio between median home prices and median income in these popular cities. It's the fact that black families' household incomes are considerably lower, therefore the ratio is worse, Ryan says. 
Until incomes grow and become more equalized, the ratios will be different. The larger problem, he says, is that government policies have had an intentional role in ensuring the inequality of the wealth opportunities through home ownership. These policy choices created difficulties in accessibility to financing and redlining practices, both of which are problems that still exist today. To fix this, local and state governments must invest in more affordable housing, better and fairer loan products, and zoning reform to allow more multifamily properties. Without these improvements, black families may not be able to call the South home for as long as they expect it or want it. That was the opinion piece titled, Is Moving to the South Really Better for Black Folks? It was written by Bria Overs, published January 25, 2024, and it appeared at the wordinblack.com website. My next story is titled, Cleveland, Next City Chosen to Preserve African American History Through Digitization Curation Program. It was published January 28, 2024, at the cleveland.com website and was written by Kaylee Remington. East Mount Zion Baptist Church curated the stories of African Americans who traveled to the Cleveland area during the Great Migration in its own museum to make sure they wouldn't be lost to time. Now, Cleveland is taking another step in preserving African American history. Cleveland is the next stop in a key initiative that digitizes and curates African American history, a national program backed by the Smithsonian Institute and several other groups that want to close the generational digital gap in cities across the country. The start of the journey began Saturday, January 27th, at East Mount Zion Baptist Church, where hundreds attended the Community Curation Summit. Community members and leaders attended the summit to collaborate on preserving their stories and to learn more about keeping their memories and family heirlooms alive. The summit was hosted by the church with support from the Western Reserve Historical Society, the Smithsonian National Museum of African American History and Culture, the Smithsonian Institute, the Robert F. Smith Center for the Digitization and Curation of African American History, the Rashad Center Incorporated, and more. Panelists at the event focused on the goal of digitization and curation of African American history. The Smithsonian Institute has already visited other diverse communities, including Chicago and Nashville, to help them digitize, save, and preserve family heirlooms and history. Tracy Jackson, a spokeswoman for the church, said before the summit, Four representatives of the Smithsonian have been in Cleveland since early this week, visiting various institutions like the Cleveland Museum of Art, Severance Hall, Cleveland State University, and Oberlin College, places that have archives, historical data, and places that are in the process of digitizing history. Cleveland has been tapped as being the next city that they would do this process in, Jackson said. Cleveland is blessed to be considered for this. Saturday's event also included performances, various panel speakers, and breakout sessions to encourage collaboration among attendees. Jackson says Saturday's event was the project's inception. Cleveland residents are starting to figure out how they can preserve their memories and how the communities in Cleveland can collaborate with one another and the Smithsonian Institute. Now that we have the resources and the Smithsonian backing us, how are we going to empower one another, commit to this project, and work together to bring it to pass and take these next five months to get boots on the ground and let our communities know what's going on, Jackson said. So much of African-American history is untold, said the Reverend Brian Cash of East Mount Zion Baptist Church in an interview before the summit 
with Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. This initiative will allow the history and culture to be available for generations to come through the digitization and curation process the Smithsonian is offering cities across the country. African-American families have contributed to America in so many different ways, but because they don't know how to tell their own story, these stories never get told, he said. So what the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C. said is, hey, we have this huge museum in D.C. that talks about the broader scope of African-American history, but there's so much more history that's still left untold. Because of this void in the history, Robert Smith of the Robert F. Smith Center for the Digitization and Curation of African American History gave money to the Smithsonian for curators to travel across the country to go into these areas where you have very different people trying to bring history together or cultivate history or do storytelling but don't have the funds or the skills to be able to bring a story alive and tell it in a strategic way to tell that story, Cash said. Cleveland is one of those cities, he said. In Cleveland, we hear a lot about Martin King, Carl Stokes and Louis Stokes, Fannie Lewis and Stephanie Tubbs Jones. These are people whose stories aren't really known, he said. And these families of generations have these stories, but they weren't curated in the right way, Cash said. It's especially special that the summit took place at East Mount Zion Baptist Church because the Greenstone Project sparked the first conversation of African-American history to be digitized, curated, and brought back to the forefront. The Greenstone Project, or Greenstone Church, comes from the color of the exterior facade of the East Mount Zion Baptist Church. It is one of Ohio's only serpentine stone buildings. The church's own museum explores African-Americans who traveled to the Cleveland area during the Great Migration, Cash said, during a live stream of the summit event Saturday. Our museum highlights those stories because so many of African-American stories were dying and their stories were going to the grave, he said. We said we wanted to curate those stories and we're so thankful to be able to have a museum that highlights those stories. That was the article, Cleveland, Next City to Preserve African-American History Through Digitization Curation Program. It was written by Kaylee Remington, published January 28, 2024, and it appeared at the Cleveland.com website. My next reading is an obituary. It's from the Washington Post. The title is Les McCann, jazz musician with a politically charged hit, dies at 88. It was written by Matt Shudell and published January 2nd, 2024. The subtitle is The Pianist and Singer's 1969 Anti-War Song Compared to What? Sold More Than One Million Copies. He then turned toward explorations of jazz fusion and electronic music. Les McCann, a musician who helped shape the soul jazz style of the 1960s with his earthy piano playing and singing and whose live recording of the anti-war anthem compared to what became a musical touchstone of the era, died December 29th at a hospital in Los Angeles. He was 88. The cause was pneumonia, said Alan Abrams, a record producer and Mr. McCann's longtime manager and songwriting partner. Largely self-taught on piano, Mr. McCann began his career as a leader of jazz trios, recording more than 30 albums during the 1960s. Along with saxophonist Julian Cannonball Adderley, organist Richard Groove Holmes, and others, he was a major exponent of soul jazz, which combined the virtuosity of bebop-inspired jazz 
with melodies and propulsive rhythms of black gospel music and blues. A popular performer at nightclubs and on television, Mr. McCann gained his greatest acclaim in 1969 with his performance of Compared to What? A politically charged protest song by Gene McDaniels that became a rhythm and blues hit at the height of the Vietnam War. Soon afterward, Mr. McCann, a relentless musical explorer, began to experiment with electronic instruments during the emerging jazz fusion movement. His energetic, rhythmically complex style influenced later generations of hip-hop musicians, including Snoop Dogg, Dr. Dre, and A Tribe Called Quest, acts that sampled Mr. McCann's recordings in their own work. Some of his initial devotees accused him of selling out and deserting his jazz roots. A New Yorker jazz writer, Whitney Ballet, once called Mr. McCann the Pasha of Soul Soap Music. In a 1991 interview on CBS Sunday Morning, however, Mr. McCann said his musical inspiration always came from the same source. It's not the instruments, it's me. During a career that lasted into his 80s, Mr. McCann wrote hundreds of songs and released more than 60 albums, yet his signature tune remained compared to what which he first recorded in 1966. The song did not catch on until Mr. McCann decided to use it as his opening number during an appearance at the Montreux Jazz Festival in Switzerland on June 21, 1969. He and his trio, bassist Leroy Vinegar and drummer Donald Dean, were joined by Eddie Harris on tenor saxophone and Benny Bailey on trumpet. There was no time for a rehearsal, and the horn players had never played with Mr. McCann before, but the resulting eight minutes of music became something of a happy accident of jazz. Mr. McCann charged into Compared to What, pounding out a powerful rhythmic figure on piano as Dean kept pace on drums. Ripples of applause welled from the audience as Mr. McCann began to sing the mildly profane lyrics, which touched on sensitive social issues and were an undisguised indictment of the government and religion. The president, he's got his war. Folks don't know just what it's for. Nobody gives us rhyme or reason. Have one doubt? They'll call it treason. We're chicken feathers all without one nut. God damn it, trying to make it real compared to what? Spurred on by Mr. McCann in the rhythm section, Harris and Bailey played fiery improvised solos as the audience grew more impassioned, giving the group a thunderous ovation. Compared to what was released on Mr. McCann's Swiss Movement album, which included several other tunes, all of them instrumentals, performed at Montreux. The album topped Billboard magazine's jazz chart and received a Grammy nomination. And compared to what became a rhythm and blues hit, reportedly selling more than one million copies. Some radio stations refused to play the song because it included the word abortion, but it has since been recorded more than 250 times. I've never been a predictor of the future, Mr. McCann told the Lexington, Kentucky Herald leader in 2008, but I always knew we had a great song with compared to what. Leslie Coleman McCann was born September 23, 1935 in Lexington. His father was a custodian who enjoyed music and drawing. His mother, a homemaker, was an amateur singer who listened to opera on the radio. Mr. McCann took a few piano lessons as a child, but he played drums and the sousaphone in his high school band. He also worked at a local theater, 
helping musicians unload their equipment in return for tickets to the performances. After high school, he joined the Navy and won a talent contest as a singer, leading to an appearance on The Ed Sullivan Show in 1956. He didn't begin playing the piano in earnest until he was 20 and heard a recording of pianist Errol Garner performing the standard Lullaby of Birdland and was mesmerized. It happened when I was in the post-exchange, he told the Detroit Free Press. I fainted right on the floor. By 1958, Mr. McCann had settled in Los Angeles where he briefly studied acting while launching his musical career. He impressed visiting musicians, including trumpeter Miles Davis, with his dynamic, bluesy style and turned down an offer to join Adderley's band, preferring to lead his own groups, which he called Les McCann Limited. He released his first albums in 1960. Les McCann Limited plays the truth and Les McCann Limited plays the shout. Two years later, he and his group backed singer Lou Rawls on his debut recording Stormy Monday. In the late 1960s, Mr. McCann discovered singer Roberta Flack at a Washington nightclub and arranged for her to make her first albums with the Atlantic label. In 1971, Mr. McCann performed before 100,000 spectators in Ghana during a 14-hour concert that also featured Wilson Pickett, Santana, and Ike and Tina Turner. Mr. McCann always traveled with cameras, taking pictures that he developed in a dark room at his home in Los Angeles. In 2015, he published Invitation to Openness, a collection of his photographs of musicians including Nina Simone, Aretha Franklin, and John Coltrane. Mr. McCann was predeceased by his wife Charlotte and a daughter. A complete list of survivors was not immediately available. In the 1990s, Mr. McCann had a stroke that limited his playing for a time. He returned to full strength by 2002 when he released Pump It Up, which featured his vocals over hard-driving funk rhythm patterns. When Mr. McCann toured France to promote the album, his manager Abrams recalled a journalist asked why he would give up the aesthetic purity of jazz in favor of funk music and amplified electronic instruments. If you want to know why we did a funk album, Mr. McCann said, it's in the first three letters, F-U-N. That was the Washington Post obituary of Les McCann, a jazz musician with a politically charged hit, dies at 88. It was written by Matt Schudel and published January 2nd, 2024 at the WashingtonPost.com website. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to the African American Hour. I'm Byron Buckner. My next reading on today's program is titled African Americans in Military Medicine. It's from the website health.mil, that's M-I-L, which is the official website of the Military Health System and Defense Health Agency. This was written by the health.mil staff and published October 30th, 2023. Honoring the achievements of Black and African Americans throughout U.S. history, Black History Month is celebrated each February. Early celebratory events date back to February 1926, which encompassed the birthdays of both Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass. The observance was expanded to a month-long celebration in 1976 and has since been commemorated by every president. Let's take a look back at just a few of the many trailblazers who have made great strides in medicine while combating the challenges faced by the black and African-American communities. 
we honor them and thank them for their contributions to health and medicine. 1837. James McCune Smith. Dr. James McCune Smith was the first African American to earn his medical degree. At the time, Dr. Smith was barred from earning his degree in the United States due to his race, causing him to travel to Glasgow, Scotland to complete his education. Upon his return to New York, he became the first university-trained black physician to practice medicine and publish articles in medical journals in the United States. He went on to work alongside the abolitionist Frederick Douglass to put an end to slavery and establish the National Council of the Colored People. 1847. David Jones Peck David Jones Peck was the first African-American to receive a medical degree in the United States. While his presence at Chicago's Rush Medical College in 1846-1847 was objected to by many, Peck's fellow students voted on his admittance, and he successfully completed the requirements for graduation in 1847. Following his graduation, Peck toured Ohio with William Lloyd Garrison, Frederick Douglass, and others before establishing his medical practice in 1848. 1861. Susie King Taylor Born into slavery in Georgia, Susie King Taylor is known for being the first black nurse during the American Civil War. Taylor treated wounded soldiers in the 1st South Carolina Volunteer Infantry Regiment. An educator and an author, Taylor wrote about her military service in her memoir, Reminiscences of My Life in Camp with the 33rd United States Colored Troops. Taylor also organized the 67th Corps of the Women's Relief Corps in 1886. 1863. Alexander Augusta. Alexander T. Augusta is among 13 known African Americans that served as surgeons during the American Civil War. A native Virginian, Augusta traveled to Canada to study medicine and achieve his degree. Following his request to President Lincoln, Dr. Alexander Augusta was the first African American to be commissioned as a medical officer in the Union Army. Augusta would later become the first black surgeon to lead a hospital in the United States, leading the contraband camp in Washington, D.C. from May through October 1863. Augusta was also the first African-American to serve on the faculty of a medical school in the United States, serving at the time the newly established medical department of Howard University in 1868. On May 16, 2023, the Defense Health Agency conducted a renaming ceremony at Fort Belvoir Community Hospital, officially changing the name to the Alexander T. Augusta Military Medical Center. 1864. Rebecca Lee Crumpler Dr. Rebecca Lee Crumpler began her career as a nurse, but went on to become the first female African American to earn a medical degree back in 1864. When the Civil War ended, Crumpler moved her practice to Richmond, Virginia. There she worked for the Freedmen's Bureau, tending to the health of newly freed slaves. 1864. Charles B. Purvis Charles B. Purvis was born in Philadelphia in 1842, the son of famed abolitionists Robert Purvis and Harriet Fortin. At the age of 18, he enrolled in Oberlin College in Ohio, earning a bachelor's degree in science in 1863. He then entered medical school at Worcester Medical College in Cleveland. In 1864, Purvis served in the Union Army in the Civil War as a military nurse at Camp Barker. He then graduated from Western Reserve in March 1865, where he completed medical training. Two months after graduation, he took the position of acting assistant surgeon with the rank of first lieutenant and was assigned to duty in Washington, D.C. 
Purvis was among the founders of the medical school at Howard University. He was the first black physician to attend a sitting president when he attended President James Garfield after he was shot by an assassin in 1881. Purvis was also the first black physician to head a hospital under civilian authority when he was made surgeon in charge of the Freedmen's Hospital that same year. Dr. Charles B. Purvis was the first black person to serve on the D.C. Board of Medical Examiners and the second black instructor at an American medical school. He was also a leading activist in civil rights and universal suffrage movements. 1895, Robert Boyd. In 1895, Dr. Robert Boyd co-founded the National Medical Association, NMA, which represents U.S. African-American doctors and medical professionals. Jim Crow laws were a major obstacle for black physicians at the time. Even the American Medical Association barred black doctors from becoming members. Boyd, who served as the first NMA president, established the NMA to make sure that black physicians had a voice in shaping medical policy and developing clinical expertise. 1906, Ada Bell Toms. In 1906, Ada Bell Toms was named Assistant Superintendent of Nurses at Lincoln Hospital in New York. While she would spend the next 18 years acting as director, her race precluded her from being given the title according to the National Museum of African American History and Culture. Toms co-founded the National Association of Colored Graduate Nurses and served as the organization's president from 1916 to 1923 and later successfully lobbied for black nurses to serve in the American Red Cross Nursing and Army Nurse Corps during World War I. Toms published the first chronicle of the history of black nurses in America with her book Pathfinders, A History of the Progress of Colored Graduate Nurses. She was one of the original inductees to the American Nurses Association Hall of Fame in 1976. 1914-1918, Louis T. Wright Dr. Louis T. Wright joined the Army Medical Corps, serving as a lieutenant during World War I, stationed in France. While there, he introduced intradermal vaccination for smallpox and was awarded the Purple Heart after a gas attack. Dr. Wright was one of 104 African-American doctors who served the 40,000 black troops who saw combat during World War I. Wright, who lived until 1952, despite a gas inhalation injury that permanently affected his lungs, helped pioneer the use of chemotherapy, becoming the first African-American physician on an integrated hospital staff, and challenged stereotypes about black people through his civil rights activism. 1941, Charles Drew. Often referred to as the father of blood banks because he developed transformative ways to store and process blood plasma, Dr. Charles Drew spearheaded a blood bank for the American Red Cross to be used for U.S. military personnel in 1941. Dr. Drew pioneered the use and preservation of blood plasma during World War II, saving the lives of thousands of U.S. troops. His discoveries translated to the civilian sector, giving rise to the modern blood banking system. 1941, Della Rainey Jackson. In 1941, Major Della Rainey Jackson became the first black nurse to be commissioned in the U.S. Army. After the war, she was assigned to head the nursing staff at the station hospital at Camp Beale, California. In 1946, she was promoted to major and served a tour of duty in Japan. Major Della Rainey Jackson retired in 1978. 1942, Waverly Bernard Woodson, Jr. In 1942, Waverly Bernard Woodson, Jr. left college 
and his dream of becoming a doctor to enlist in the U.S. Army. He was sent to medic training and assigned to the all-black 320th Anti-Aircraft Barrage Balloon Battalion, a unit that set up explosive balloons to intercept German planes. On June 6, 1944, en route to Omaha Beach, Woodson's landing craft hit a mine. He was severely wounded but spent 30 hours tending to other wounded men before collapsing from exhaustion. Woodson is credited with saving dozens, perhaps hundreds of lives on D-Day. After the war, Woodson served 28 years at the Naval Medical Center in Bethesda, Maryland, and later at the National Institutes of Health until his retirement in 1980. After Woodson's passing in 2005, Senator Chris Van Hollen fought to have Woodson posthumously awarded the Medal of Honor for his valor on D-Day, a lack of documentation in part because of a fire that destroyed millions of military personnel files thwarted the effort. 1952, Alvin Vincent Blount, Jr. Dr. Alvin Vincent Blount, Jr. attended medical school at Howard University during the 1940s in Washington, D.C., where he studied under Dr. Charles Drew. He was deployed to Korea in 1952 and became the first black chief of surgery in a mobile army surgical hospital unit. During his tour, Dr. Blount and his team performed 60 major and minor surgeries each week. 1955, Hazel Johnson Brown. Brigadier General Hazel Johnson Brown enlisted in the military in 1955, just seven years after President Harry S. Truman moved to integrate the United States Armed Forces and abolish discrimination. As she continued to advance her education, Johnson Brown was named director of the Walter Reed Army Institute of Nursing and Army Nurse of the Year two times. In 1979, she was nominated as the 16th Chief of the Army Nurse Corps and promoted to Brigadier General, becoming the first African-American woman to earn the rank. Following her retirement, Brigadier General Hazel Johnson Brown entered academia, serving as a professor of nursing at Georgetown University and George Mason University. 1965, Lawrence Joel. A native of Winston-Salem, North Carolina, Lawrence Joel was a veteran of the Korean War and the Vietnam War. Joel began his military career in the U.S. Merchant Marine, serving for a year before enlisting in the U.S. Army at the age of 18. Trained as a medic, Joel served several deployments during the Korean War. During the Vietnam War, he served as a medical aid man for the 1st Battalion Airborne 503rd Infantry, 173rd Airborne Brigade. On November 8, 1965, while in an enemy stronghold northwest of Saigon, Joel sustained multiple wounds from intense fire. Despite his injuries, Joel persevered for more than 12 hours to bring his comrades to safety. For his selfless valor on that day, President Lyndon B. Johnson awarded him the Medal of Honor on March 9, 1967, distinguishing Joel as the first African-American since the Spanish-American War of 1898 to earn the medal, as well as the first medic to receive the award during the Vietnam War. He retired from the Army in 1973 and passed away in 1984. 1972, Tony Polk. In 1972, Army Colonel Tony Polk became the second African-American to enroll in the Armed Services Blood Program Specialist in Blood Banking Fellowship Program. Polk would go on to serve in the Pacific Blood Program during the Vietnam War and later as the overall person in charge of military blood banking in Europe. Polk would later become the director of the Department of Defense Military Blood Program Office 
and would transform the various military blood programs into what would become the Armed Services Blood Program of today. 1980, Guthrie Turner Jr. Brigadier General Guthrie Turner Jr. was the first African American to achieve the rank of General Officer in the Army Medical Corps and the first African American to command an Army hospital, serving as Madigan Army Medical Center's commanding general from 1980 to 1983. After his retirement from the military, Dr. Turner entered a second career as the medical director of the Medicaid Assistance Administration of the Department of Social and Human Services for the state of Washington. A man who believed in service, Dr. Turner donated his time to many organizations such as Shaw University, their Franciscan Health Network, the National Medical Association, the Madigan Foundation Board, the Tacoma Urban League, and Oberlin Congregational Church. 1989, Sean K. Bagby. With a bachelor's degree, two master's degrees, and a doctor of dental medicine, it's no wonder that Sean K. Bagby's 22-year military career is distinguished by leadership and influence. Bagby commanded eight dental facilities in Iraq, taught oral surgery at Walter Reed National Military Medical Center in Bethesda, Maryland, and served as chief of the U.S. Army Dental Corps. On May 24, 2018, Bagby became the U.S. Army's first African-American dental officer to be promoted to Brigadier General. Two years later, he was named Commanding General of the Brook Army Medical Center, the military health system's largest and only level one trauma center. Bagby later served as Deputy Director at the Defense Health Agency from September 2021 to May 2022. Today, Bagby is Vice President of Mobile Integrated Care at CityBlock Health. Brooklyn, New York, which delivers medical care and services to underserved communities. 1995, Linnell Boma. How did the sometimes homeless kid who lost her dad to gun violence wind up advising military leaders on the health and wellness of an entire region of troops? According to Navy Captain Linnell Boma, it was her determination, invaluable mentors, and her sisters urging to join the U.S. Navy. Boma, a board-certified pediatric gastroenterologist, was the first black female medical corps commanding officer to lead the Navy Medical Readiness and Training Command in 29 Palms, California. Today, Captain Boma is the U.S. Third Fleet Surgeon for San Diego-based fleet's leadership on all things medical. 2007, Laura Martinez, appointed the 12th Force Master Chief and the Director of the Hospital Corps in November 2007, Master Chief Laura A. Martinez holds the distinction as the first African-American and second woman to serve in this role. Over the course of her 32 years of active service, Martinez held various command executive leadership positions, including Command Master Chief of Field Medical Training Battalion East, National Capital Area National Naval Medical Center, and 2nd Marine Logistics Group. 2013, Nadja West. In 2013, Lieutenant General Nacha West became the first black female major general of the Army's active component and was Army Medicine's first African-American female two-star general. In 2015, she was the first African-American appointed as the U.S. Army Surgeon General, and in 2016, Lieutenant General West became the first black female lieutenant general and the highest-ranking woman to graduate from the United States Military Academy. 2017, Cecilia Brown. Born in Cleveland, Ohio and raised in Sparta, Georgia, Cecilia Brown earned two bachelor's degrees, 
two master's degrees and a doctorate degree in dental surgery. Armed with that extensive educational background, Brown began her military career in the United States Air Force, later commissioning into the U.S. Navy. In 2017, Brown became the first African-American woman to complete the U.S. Navy oral and maxillofacial surgical residency program and is to date the only African-American oral surgeon in the U.S. Navy. Brown's military honors include the Humanitarian Service Medal, Navy and Marine Corps Commendation Medal, Navy and Marine Corps Achievement Medal with Gold Star, and the Meritorious Unit Commendation. For her outstanding achievements as a uniformed dental officer, Brown was awarded the Jean Hansen Bayless Uniformed Services Award in 2019. 2023, Talita Crossland. Talita Crossland joined the Army as a Medical Corps officer in 1993. She is a graduate of the U.S. Military Academy, the Uniformed Services University of Health Sciences, and the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College. During her three decades of service, she has garnered the Legion of Merit, Meritorious Service Medal, Army Commendation Medal, Joint Service Achievement Medal, Army Staff Badge, and the Parachutist Badge. On January 3, 2023, U.S. Army Major General Crossland made history becoming the DHA's fourth director in its nearly 10-year existence, serving also as the first African-American DHA director. 2023, Tanya Johnson. Tanya Johnson entered the Air Force in October 1993. She graduated from the Medical Laboratory Apprentice Technical Training Course in December 1994. Johnson has served as a clinical laboratory technician, protocol assistant for the 375th Airlift Wing Commander, and executive assistant to both the Aeronautical Systems Center and Air Education and Training Command, Command Chief Master Sergeant. Johnson has deployed in support of Operation United Assistance, Operation Inherent Resolve, and Operation Deliberate Resolve. On March 10, 2023, Chief Master Sergeant Tanya Johnson was ceremoniously named Senior Enlisted Leader of the Defense Health Agency. She is DHA's first female enlisted senior leader. 2023, Candace Jones Cox. Candace Jones Cox joined the U.S. Army as a gynecological surgeon in 2007. For more than a decade, Jones Cox dedicated herself to specializing in women's reproductive health in the U.S. Army. Jones Cox went on to join the Walter Reed National Military Medical Center in Bethesda, Maryland. There she made history on March 17, 2023, as the first surgeon in DOD to perform a revolutionary robotic surgery for hysterectomy patients called V-notes, which stands for Vaginal Natural Orifice Transluminal Endoscopic Surgery. Using V-notes, patients' recovery time, discomfort, and hospital stays are greatly reduced. Today, Jones-Cox continues her work at the Walter Reed National Military Medical Center as the Director of Women's Health Services, where she is dedicated to empowering her patients who face life-changing medical decisions. That was the article titled, African Americans in Military Medicine. It's from the website health.mil, that's M-I-L, which is the official website of the Military Health System and Defense Health Agency. This was written by the Health.mil staff and published October 30th, 2023. I'm going to wrap up today's African American Hour with a book review. The title of the book being reviewed is Clan War, 
Ulysses S. Grant and the Battle to Save Reconstruction, written by Fergus S. Bordovich. The title of the review is The President vs. the Klan. A new history by Fergus M. Bordovich examines Ulysses S. Grant's battle against white supremacist terror. The review was written by Jennifer Salai, capital S-Z-A-L-A-I, and published October 11, 2023, in the New York Times Book Review. As portents go, little more could be more ominous than what took place on the evening of March 4, 1873, at the inaugural gala for President Ulysses S. Grant's second term. A cavernous wooden structure had been built for the event. Hundreds of canaries had been brought in to serenade the guests, who were treated to a lavish spread of party food, partridges and oysters, boars' heads and lobsters. But one crucial element had been bizarrely overlooked. The room wasn't heated. The food started to freeze. By the time Grant and his entourage arrived, some of the canaries had keeled over, falling like little lumps of frozen yellow fruit on the diners and dancers below. This dramatic image shows up in the last quarter of Fergus M. Bordovich's Klan War, a vivid and sobering account of Grant's efforts to crush the Klan in the South. The book traces an arc that seems to bend toward justice before it got twisted again. Before his first term, the president could credibly claim he had broken the back of the Ku Klux Klan, Bordovich writes. But the Dead Canaries, which punctuates a chapter titled Grant Triumphant, are a grim clue that the victory will not last. When Grant began his second term, the will and the money to fight white supremacist terror had already started to ebb. Clan War is another addition to a growing shelf of books taking another look at the period after the Civil War known as Reconstruction. For much of the 20th century, W.E.B. Du Bois' Black Reconstruction in America and John Hope Franklin's Reconstruction after the Civil War were outliers in a historiography dominated by works that cast Reconstruction as a time of corruption and misrule. Historians like Eric Foner have since depicted Reconstruction as an attempt to establish a multiracial democracy before it was overturned by Southern backlash and Northern lassitude. Recent books like Kidada E. Williams' I Saw Death Coming, long listed this year for the National Book Award, tells the story of Reconstruction from the perspective of black Southerners who were terrorized by the Klan. Bordovich, the author of several histories of the Civil War era, focuses on Grant's anti-terror policies, conveying the panoply of factors that led to their initial success and later to their tragic demise. In its early days in Pulaski, Tennessee, the Ku Klux Klan was a bunch of ex-Confederate buffoons who mainly practiced a sort of comic street theater, he writes. Klansmen would turn up in preposterous attire, affecting grandiose titles like Grand Magi and Grand Cyclops, and communicate by means of hand signals and what sounded like gibberish. The clowning soon became sinister, however. The Klansmen took pleasure in scaring newly freed black people whom they menaced for their insolence for exercising their rights. What seemed at first like silliness turned into a sustained campaign of brutality and murder. By 1868, Klan terror had spread throughout the South. Racist foolery became floggings and beatings, and then lynchings and shootings, often of savage cruelty, accompanied by systematic torture, burnings, castrations, and sexual humiliation, Bordovich writes. 
The Klansmen themselves habitually brushed off such grotesque violence as the excess of a few reckless members. But Bordovich documents how Grant and his administration came to learn that the sadism was orchestrated and deliberate. This was terror as an instrument of political control. But Grant's education took some time. Several months after the end of the Civil War, when he was still commander of the armed forces, Grant gave a reassuring report on the South to President Andrew Johnson, who was seeking a healing policy and swift return to affection. A more damning report was written by a former Union general named Carl Schurz, who noted that white Southerners were largely unrepentant after all the bloodshed, clinging to the delusional belief that their civilization was the highest that could be attained. Bordovich describes how Johnson suppressed Scherz's report in favor of Grant's whitewash. Grant and Scherz would later come to switch ideological places, with President Grant pursuing the Klan with the power of the federal government, while Scherz, as a senator from Missouri and one of the liberal Republicans who rejected the more forceful agenda of the radical Republicans, insisted that federal enforcement of Reconstruction was an intolerable infringement on states' rights. Bordovich suggests that Scherz's about-face had less to do with cynical opportunism than squishy centrism. Optimism and faith in the basic decency of human beings were his greatest strengths and, perhaps, equally great weaknesses. Scherz, though, wasn't so high-minded that he was above being thin-skinned. The radical attitude toward liberals like himself was, he complained, a sort of terrorism. For the most part, Bordovich's narrative hews closely to the historical period, showing how federal power was the only way to stamp out local regimes that countenanced the suffering of black people while allowing white perpetrators to go unpunished. For all the cries about states' rights, the Klan was unabashedly anti-democratic. Some black Southerners, especially those who survived attacks or witnessed violence firsthand, decided they couldn't bear the extreme risk of simply exercising their franchise. Bordovich includes some heart-rendering testimony from freedmen who were too terrified to go to the ballot box. As one black man put it, I had to deny voting to save myself. Toward the end of the book, Bordovich gestures toward the fractured political landscape of the present day. Grant's victory over the Klan is a story that many Americans would like to tell themselves but the retrenchment that followed is a cautionary tale. A premature push for conciliation and compromise can leave the roots of some very old pathologies untouched, ready to grow again when the conditions are right. Barbarism, Bordovich writes, may lie only a small distance beneath the skin of civilization. That was a review of the book titled Clan War, Ulysses S. Grant and the Battle to Save Reconstruction, written by Fergus M. Bordovich. The title of this New York Times book review is The President vs. the Klan, a new history by Fergus M. Bordovich examines Ulysses S. Grant's battle against white supremacist terror. The review was written by Jennifer Salai and published October 11, 2023. That's all the time we have this week. If you would like to listen to this program again or past editions of the African American Hour, you can find them wherever you get your podcasts or at the Audio Reader website at reader.ku.edu. I'm Byron Buckner, and thank you for listening to the African American Hour. Music